Welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, the latest on shares, markets and investments, now available on your Amazon Alexa. Hello and welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, now also available on the UK Investor Magazine mobile app. For today's podcast, we're kindly joined by David Storm, who is the Chief Investment Officer for the British Isles and Asia at RBC Wealth Management. We're going to be discussing the global economy. We're going to be delving into different asset classes and looking at where David sees value and strength going forward for the rest of 2023. So, David, thank you very much for being on the podcast this morning. Hi, Jonathan. Uh, thanks very much for uh, for having me on. So, David, we're going to be delving into your strategy, the portfolios and where you see value later on in the podcast. But before we do that, would you kindly be able to give listeners a bit of a background to yourself and your role at RBC Wealth Management and the area of business that you that you focus on? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, I've been at RBC for 16 years now, but I've been in the financial industry and specifically within wealth management, where our role is to help uh, individual uh, clients, uh, I mean, prosper, um, do well with their, their money, help them uh, invest. I mean, ultimately, that is the key focus of my role as a chief investment officer. Um, it's to make investment decisions and to help our clients uh, make investment decisions that are as, in, as informed as, as possible. I mean, to be able to do this role, that means that I, you know, literally sit in the middle of uh, macro or market views. You can imagine we have a, a global team. So on one side, macro and market views, and then on the other side, specialists that have different ideas around how we can specifically invest in those views. And you can imagine, you know, typically there are uh, multiple ways that you can invest in an idea. So I feel very privileged. I work alongside some uh, very smart people across the globe, and I steal all of their ideas uh, to put into our client uh, portfolios. I mean, and for me, one of the real uh, value adds that I find in my role, I mean, you, you said, you know, I cover both uh, British Isles and Asia, is uh, to work across those regions because often, you know, somebody in Hong Kong or Singapore would have quite a different perspective uh, from somebody in uh, the UK. And so uh, it helps give a, a more rounded decision. Fantastic. Thank you. So we're going to take a top down approach to this conversation. And we're going to start with the macro picture, David, if we may, and, and really start to look at, at geopolitics. And then we can go in later on in the podcast and look at how that's driving your strategy. So it's quite interesting. We're having this conversation just a couple of days after the suspected Chinese spy balloon was shot down by the United States, which really does represent geopolitics at the moment. If we're looking at the relationship between the US and China, there was some suggestion that, the, that things could be cooling and relations could be improving. But of course, that that's really uh, taken a, a step back with uh, the news that we saw over the weekend. I mean, how much of a representation is that action by the United States? And first of all, by China actually having that, that balloon there 
in the first place represent how we're dealing at the moment with geopolitics and the relationships between different governments and what that means for the global economy? Yeah, I think um, it's a good reminder that we're in a, you know, an increasingly competitive and, you know, on the other side, less collaborative uh, world. I mean, on the one hand, you can look at the story around the balloon as like, you know, fairly amusing. It was spotted not by the US the air defense system, but by uh, a group of amateur astronomers trying to look uh, for a star or a comet um, and uh, eventually, you know, shot down. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, you can run all sorts of uh, conspiracy theories and cover-ups uh, around the true meaning uh, of uh, the balloon. But as I say, I mean, it's a reminder that um, basically we're in a more confrontational world um, between, uh, let's say, the US and China, and, and not just uh, those countries. Uh, you can think of uh, Russia, Ukraine uh, as well. Um, but also it sort of sets the context that realistically we're 15 years or so beyond the peak of uh, globalization and we're seeing those effects every single day. So yes, it's just a balloon, but um, we're seeing the meaningful effects of, of deglobalization day by day. So that, that's an interesting point there because I was going to ask David, you mentioned there that, that the peak of globalization was, was was 15 years ago i mean i was going to ask are we actually now in a stage of of deglobalization but you you answered my question there what does this actually mean for the global economy going forward in in terms of growth because of course globalization was, was really associated with many decades of growth primarily from china driving global growth but that's that's really changed in the last five years. I mean, is this a problem that you see for the global economy going forward? Or is it merely a, a reset of the way things are done and we're gonna muddle through it and, and find a, a new way of operating that, that can still provide growth? And maybe does the deglobalization model for global economics, do, do you feel that that would offer a lower growth potential than if we were still increasing globalization uh, and hadn't gone into this stage of deglobalization. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. And I think um, a, a lot of what you said makes uh, sense. Yeah, um, we would expect um, as we move away from this sort of, uh, you know, Ricardian world of real global efficiency where companies are optimized for global supply chains and, you know, everything's delivered just in time uh, to like a less efficient world, a more competitive world. Um, I think as as we record this today, this evening, uh, it's the US uh, State of the Union address. And what we're expecting to hear about is this sort of doubling down on the policy of buy America, um, following on from the Inflation Reduction Act, which also was, you know, maybe less than friendly to um, some of America's allies. Now we're going to progress to this stage where uh, government projects in the US, the expectation is that um, whether that's uh, infrastructure, clean energy, etc, the copper that's being used is expected to be domestic. Um, and that's probably less efficient than getting copper out of mine uh, somewhere else in the world. Um, so you have this buy America policy, 
uh, in China, uh, we've probably uh, talked to death around the, the policy of dual circulation, where again, the focus is inward. Uh, it's on the domestic uh, economy. I mean, I'll say, you know, recently I was in Asia meeting uh, different groups of clients. So whether that's Manila, Jakarta, et cetera. And in every country um, I went to, uh, the policies are just like the UK's. So there's this focus on security. So whether that's energy security, food security, uh, cyber security, supply chain security. So everyone's heading in this uh, inward looking direction uh, at the same time, trying to uh, secure everything within our own, own borders. Uh, and for corporates, many of which, you know, almost all of which are, you know, global and multinational in thinking, it's a, it's a game changer. And so uh, if you're uh, uh, running some sort of uh, industrial company, uh, you maybe can't rely on your uh, uh, some of your suppliers if they're based in China. You know, if you're in the US, the government probably won't allow you um, to rely on them. So that is a, a certainly less efficient uh, for uh, companies. Um, it's a cost uh, for security. Um, and you would expect this to be, you know, inflationary at the margin. Uh, it's going to reduce uh, corporate profit margins and make things more expensive for end uh, consumers. Um, at the same time, yeah, I mean, you, you said this in the in the question, that there will be some companies that are are winners here, um, and some that ultimately uh, are are losers. So. Uh, it's a very interesting time because you see a lot of uh, differentiation, a lot of dispersion in uh, markets, and the winners will be companies who are able to um, uh, reset themselves and adjust to the new world. So we're going to talk a little bit later on in the podcast about where you potentially see some of those winners, David, but to... Stay on the, the macro picture. Now, of course, one of the consequences of French shoring and, and deglobalization has been inflation. Of course, a big element of inflation over the last 12 months has been the tragedy that's unfolding in Ukraine at this point in time. But from where you stand, David, and, and you're looking at inflation and, and inflation rates, which are forecast to fall later on this year. I mean, how much of that is a, is a consequence at this point of what's happening in Ukraine and how much of this is a consequence of this deglobalization de and friendshoring, which is potentially causing prices to, uh, to increase. Yeah. So it's, it's a combination of things, uh, isn't it? And, and, you know, we also have to say uh, it's a consequence of uh, COVID, uh, the response to COVID. So how that's impacted uh, supply chains, how that impacted um, uh, government spending. You know, a lot of uh, liquidity got pumped into the system. Uh, it has to go somewhere. Uh, and ultimately, uh, that's also been helped to inflate uh, prices uh, across the world. Um, add in a, a Ukraine-Russia war, uh, add in deglobalization, uh, and you've got a pretty uh, heady mix or, uh, you know, the right ingredients or right cocktail ingredients uh, for uh, inflation. Um, how long do we think that will be sustained for? Um, again, we'd say it's probably more complicated than markets are really pricing. 
if you look at the uh, you know US inflation uh, expectations, so just implied in the price, uh, it's the CPI will be at so down from six point five percent, it'll be at two point three percent by the end of the year, and from then on for the next decade, it will be handily enough. 2.2% or practically just in line with the exact Fed uh, target, the Federal Reserve target for the next 10 years. And I think we could probably all agree it's unlikely to be that smooth a path. Um, it's probably more complicated than that. And uh, that creates opportunities in markets. That's a good point there, David. It's something that I just want to expand on because it seems at the moment when, when we're looking at market gyrations that there's a lot of hope being pinned on potentially lower rates at the end of this year. If you look at the United States, particularly here in the, the UK, and of course, that's going to be dictated by inflation and the strength of economies. And, you know, we've, we've just seen in the last few days of the non-farm payrolls that came out from the United States, what can happen to markets if there's any suggestion that we, we may see rates for longer than expected? I mean, you did allude to there that there, there may be some mispricing in markets at the moment, but do you feel there could be a period of pain that comes up at some point this year before we start to see a move to normalization. I mean, we say normalization, I mean, normalization for the last decade it isn't normalization historically. But if we start to see lower interest rates and move back down to the average of what we've seen in the last decade, of course, that was zero. I don't think we're going to go back down there. But you sort of look, you know, looking, looking at where we are now, people are, the, are hoping that, yes, we've had this hiking cycle, which should be followed, or they'd like to see it being followed by a loosening in, in policy. I mean, how much of a reality do you think this is? And, and, and are the markets set up for a period of pain if it's if it doesn't play out that way? Yeah, I think hope is absolutely the, the right word uh, to use here. Uh, this idea that um, it's just a simple flick of the switch and everything goes uh, back to normal. We have, you know, we return to low interest rates, the stable inflation, uh, actually a, a a world that um, deglobalizes very, very uh, slowly. Um, I don't think we're in uh, that period. You know, I would say uh, my belief is that we're on the, the the other side of that coin. We're actually heading for a bit of a, a global reset, where we all have to get used to the idea of the cost of capital or interest rates uh, being higher. Uh, that has consequences across uh, uh, asset classes. Uh, we probably also have to get used to the idea of tolerating uh, inflation at a higher level. So this idea of 2.2% uh, in the US for the next uh, 10 years, or if you extend it out even further, I think you know it's practically 2.2% for the next 30 years, seems hopeful uh, to me. At very least, we should consider that maybe it won't be uh, that simple and that the destination we're heading back to or not heading back to is it is a different place that probably calls for a different um, investment approach uh, as well. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of hope in markets. <clears throat> we saw, as you said, uh, Jonathan, non-farm payrolls and a bit of Fed speak um, has uh, reversed uh, some of that real uh, optimism. Uh, and um, I would say if we return to, you know, a bit, a bit more realism, you would expect that markets will chop around as as they actually 
understand and see more and more data points, let's not forget the data has been distorted by uh, uh, two or three years of unprecedented response uh, to uh, to COVID, I guess, uh, two years of unprecedented response to, to COVID in both fiscal and monetary policy. So look, uh, you also can't rely 100% on, on the data being perfect. Um, but I think, yeah, we're headed to a, a new world with a new new um, uh, form of investing or a new way to invest uh, is probably required. Fantastic. So we're going to try and bring this all together now, David, if we may, and look at what your strategy is for, for this year. So if we start with particular assets and sectors, of course, you're a multi-asset strategy. Should be should be good to get an idea of your weighting towards bonds and equities and how that's changed and how that, that may change. And then maybe within the equity space, is there any particular sectors? Now, going back to those points that you made earlier in the conversation about you know potential winners in this era of deglobalization. Uh, yeah, and uh, it's a great question. So I would say um, we don't expect uh, 2023 to just be a set it and forget it um, year. Um, much like 2022, it's going to be a trader's market, but probably uh, not with the same wild swings. So slightly more stuck in a range. So when I think about uh, what we're doing in, in different asset classes, you know, maybe we'll start with the the main thing that that, that really uh, impacts everything. So the cost of capital or or US rates, um, rates exposure. I think we've pretty much uh, moved uh, back to neutral, um, but we're seeing that it will gyrate around the sort of center point. Um, last year, uh, we entered the year as underweight rates duration exposure as we possibly. Uh, could be, uh, and then we've pretty much reversed that position of we as we've come into uh, uh, 2023. So, uh, I guess the phrase people use it, you know, bonds become interesting or fixed income has become interesting uh, because you're getting paid uh, interest to hold these securities. You know, that sets a higher bar for equities as well. Um, but if I focus in on fixed income, what have we been doing there? So uh, slightly barbelling our exposure. Um, so we've got government rates exposure, pretty much uh, uh, at neutral. Uh, we have uh, credit exposure. And by that, I mean uh, investment grade credit. Um, we've gone as high quality as we uh, possibly uh, can there. Uh, and we barbell that with some of the more interesting pockets of the market. So um, things like uh, um, 81s, COCOs to contingent convertible bonds or bank capital. Uh, we still believe that banks are incredibly well uh, capitalized uh, and there's real value uh, in, in those bonds. Um, we also quite like the idea of uh, this year being a period of monetary policy uh, divergence, i.e. different central banks are moving at different uh, rates. They're not just all following the Fed as they, as they pretty much have done for the past uh, 30 years. Um, and the area that you tend to see that show up most is in emerging markets. And um, so we quite like uh, emerging market uh, debt uh, as an area to really uh, trade. So when we're thinking about how we 
um, implement trades and you know said there's multiple ways to implement different uh, trades really there we're looking for a specialist manager that can uh, be very flexible and quite nimble in, in what they can do so they can generate returns regardless of market direction so if that's in fixed income I'll switch over to equities yeah I think equities this year uh, you again you need this combination of the ability to be uh, quite defensive uh, at one end and quite opportunistic um, at the other um, there will be times when we reach the top of a trading range and uh, you then want to switch uh, quite defensive so there you're thinking like healthcare utilities the classic uh, dividend payers and really again the quality uh, emphasis so companies with high quality uh, uh, balance sheets that generate uh, high quality and stable cash flow you know uh, you don't need to take uh, a huge huge risk on uh, uh, the trashy sort of companies that maybe we've seen or, or sectors that we've seen do very well uh, year to date um, so a bit of a focus on quality and then at the other end a real focus on the micro opportunities that you're seeing within uh, different uh, sectors different industries and if I give an example of that one of the areas we've been uh, super focused on has been US biotech and um, so there you're looking for uh, companies that have let's say events or catalysts uh, that can drive value uh, in individual uh, stocks so biotech is you know uh, uh, practically ground zero for events uh, that can drive value in companies uh, and there you're thinking you know clinical trial results so there were some very promising results around um, uh, alzheimer's uh, drugs uh, out of a few uh, or out of a company last year there's been uh, an increase in m a activity uh, in that sector so there we're looking more at micro opportunities rather than just thinking ah oh, uh, us versus uk or or you know europe versus china um, etc so it's this combination of quality at one end and opportunistic uh, at the other inequities. And last but maybe not least, I'll say we're also looking, you know, just beyond um, traditional um, asset classes or beyond uh, traditional strategies. I'd say I think um, it's a trader's market and you want to have um, trading strategies uh, in your portfolios. And those, so typically those will be um, alternatives. Um, they definitely have a role to play, I think, in, in the year ahead. Um, and they can be different areas of the market. So one area that we've uh, had quite a focus on has been um, carbon allowances, not only as a way to think about how to manage the risks of carbon emissions within portfolios, um, but also as a speculative tool. Um, we've seen more and more interest in, in carbon markets globally, uh, pretty much since uh, COP26, although, of course, uh, uh, before then. And uh, the opportunities there are uh, very interesting. So um, we're trying to think about different areas and different drivers of return that provide really what I would describe as true diversification to a portfolio. Um, so. Uh, not linked in the same way that maybe um, let's say equities and credit have a reasonable linkage you know uh, uh, carbon and uh, global rates 
they don't have that much of a linkage. So uh, we've been thinking about how to truly diversify portfolios this year and make them as robust as possible. Thank you, David. I just want to go back to a point there that you were speaking about emerging markets and bring back this theme of, of deglobalization. So when you're looking at emerging markets, and you say that you use a specialist manager for that, I mean, how much do you break down emerging markets into individual companies? Because, of, of course, the emerging markets, you have China, Brazil, uh, India, for example, all very different economies. And, of course, in an era of deglobalization, they're doing different things within their economies. So do you go down to the more granular level of looking at individual companies? Or is that something that you really pass over to a specialist manager to, to take care of, but you, you see value in the overall emerging market space? Yeah, it's, it's a bit of both, uh, uh, to be clear. So I think um, there's clear uh, difference in, we could say, the monetary policy of uh, Brazil versus Bulgaria or, you know, um, uh, Poland versus the Philippines. Uh, these are countries that are on a different path and face uh, different risks. And just in terms of their uh, rate markets or their interest rate markets, they're going to be doing different things. So that in itself is an opportunity set. Uh, and then you move down, as you say, into uh, individual uh, companies. Uh, that is where we most certainly uh, leave that in the hands of a, of a specialist. And so we do have um, very good coverage of, of, of say, uh, China uh, and uh, Asia uh, in particular. Um, but, you know, credit uh, requires uh, even more in-depth research, I would say, than, than, than equities. Individual bonds have different covenants, uh, different maturities. The same company can issue 100 different securities. And um, so uh, there... That's where we really, really rely on the, the specialist manager to help. Thank you. So to finish off now, David, it's, it's a question really about your overall strategy and how things have developed since the pandemic, maybe really. You know, in terms of your capital allocation, and you did allude to it there when you were talking about equities, you were looking at you know, top of trading ranges and becoming more defensive. You know, do you see the allocation strategy at this point in time becoming maybe more reactive to, to what's happening in market? Or, or are you still really sort of making forecasts and looking at what you think will happen and you're quite happy to stick to your guns in positions and ride out market waves as opposed to taking advantage of them in the short term? Yeah, so I think um, uh, if maybe it's a, a minor repeat you know if 2022 was a, a trader's market even and the trades were big the themes were big um we still believe that 2023 is a is a trader's market where if you think just the general asset class returns from equities you would expect them to be uh, lower uh, than in than on average um in uh, rates markets you're getting paid to take risk as well but I'd say overall, I wouldn't expect us to just have a static position, uh, just hold it and close our eyes. Um, for many investors, that's often a very good thing to do. It's a very disciplined thing to do. I'd say it's pretty much what um, I do with one, um, let's say, the core uh, of uh, my investments. 
but I would say the environment is such that there's real opportunities to add value, um, not just around the edges, but with a significant allocation within your portfolio. So um, if we took uh, what's happened in, in equity markets year to day, um, some of the sector moves have been incredible. So uh, really beaten up US consumer discretionary uh, up 50% this year. Um, is that something that we probably want to own now? No. <laughs> so uh, again, I think the idea of uh, just, you know, 60, 40, set it, forget it. Um, that might not be the strategy that, that you need for not only this year, but let's say for the next 10 years, as we work through the geopolitical um, issues, that more competitive global environment that, that you've um, uh, mentioned and really set the scene with, uh, Jonathan. So um, does that mean we're more reactive? I, I would say we're more active because we always want to try and be a step ahead of the market rather than just simply reacting to what's happening to us. Um, when I sit down uh, with the team, uh, we're trying to think about forward-looking uh, scenarios. So that sort of what if and uh, and, and then what. So uh, if that happens, what would we expect to do uh, in terms of our positioning? And so, yeah, uh, definitely uh, more active. Fantastic. Thank you very much, David. That's That's been fascinating. So just as a final note to listeners, David, where, where's the best place if, if people are listening to this want to to know a little bit more about your strategy and uh, the way that you guys work and, and what's on offer, where, where's the best place for them to go to? Yeah, I mean, you should definitely visit um, RBC's uh, website. That will give you um, all of the places that you can uh, contact uh, people in the team, uh, not only the individual uh, experts, but also to contact um, uh, relationship managers. So uh, people who specialize in really um, listening to and understanding your unique uh, circumstances, helping with wealth planning, uh, the investments that come off the back of that. So, yeah, I mean, I'd say uh, visit the website in the first instance um, and uh, you'll get all the contact details you need from there. Fantastic. So, David, thank you very much for being on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks very much, Jonathan. And uh, let's hope uh, 2023 is maybe less exciting than uh, 2022 was. Oh, yes. I mean, I'm certainly <laughs> looking forward to this year. It's, it's going to be an interesting one, uh, given the way that we've set up in the first month of the year so far. So once more, thank you very much, David. And thank you very much to everyone for listening. We hope you enjoyed listening to the UK Investor Magazine podcast. Please do share the podcast and we really value any reviews and comments you leave us in your chosen podcast player. The views presented by the hosts and guests of the UK Investor Magazine podcast are in no way investment advice. And please remember all investment involves risk.